and welcome to the Room Madness Podcast, the place for everyone who is crazy about rheumatology. My name is David Leverance, and I am a rheumatologist specializing in medical education, corny jokes, quality improvement, and sharing my over-exuberant enthusiasm about rheumatology with others. Today, we'll be continuing on with our audiobook version of Reading the Scouting Reports, As you may know, if you are planning to read those online, uh, which you can access in the show notes of this podcast or by just Googling Room Madness, or if you have already read them, um, you don't need to listen to this podcast. Uh, You already have uh, explored those topics uh, thoroughly. But if you'd rather read, uh, listen to the, uh, the scouting reports in podcast form, then this is the place for you. And today, instead of my voice, we will be hearing from Dr. Lisa Crisioni Schreiber, who will be reading through the scouting reports of the miscellaneous and small but mighty regions in the tournament. Dr. Crisioni Schreiber is one of my uh, main mentors in all things medical education, uh, but especially for this project. She is an educator, researcher, mentor, extraordinaire, and also very good at reading scouting reports. So here we go. IgG4 Related Disease Classification Criteria Scouting Report, written by Guy Katz, Ian Cooley, Duncan Moore, Naomi Patel, from the Massachusetts General Hospital Rheumatology Fellowship. Topic Overview. IgG4 Related Disease is a systemic immune-mediated fibroinflammatory disease first described in the early 2000s. Many of its manifestations have long been recognized and thought to represent idiopathic single-organ system diseases. These are now unified by this underlying diagnosis, primarily on the basis of a common histopathology characterized by storiform fibrosis, obliterative phlebitis, and an IgG4-rich lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate. While some clinical features can be quite suggestive, manifestations can be protean and the disease is notoriously difficult to differentiate from other mimicking conditions such as sarcoidosis, Sjogren's syndrome, ANCA-associated vasculitis, and lymphoma. Both because it is a recently recognized disease and because of the frequently challenging nature of arriving at the diagnosis, the development of effective classification criteria is invaluable for research and clinical purposes. These criteria were developed by a large multi-specialty international group and feature a robust list of exclusion criteria in addition to inclusion criteria, as well as a weighted scoring system, which yielded a sensitivity of 82 to 85.5% and a specificity of 97.8 to 99.2% in validation cohorts. Implications for patients, providers, and researchers. Current implications. These are the first ever classification criteria for IgG4-related disease. Researchers can immediately begin using them to generate standardized cohorts for prospective clinical trials and epidemiologic studies that will allow for robust, replicable, and generalizable research in this disease. Like other classification criteria, despite the fact that these criteria were developed primarily for research purposes, they have demonstrated remarkable clinical utility as well. The criteria present a user-friendly and comprehensive framework with which to approach the diagnosis of this rare, underrecognized, and treatable disease. The publication alone has already helped raise awareness and understanding of this disease. Future implications. These criteria are likely to benefit clinicians, researchers, and patients for quite some time. Study of the pathophysiology of the disease itself has led to a broader understanding of autoimmunity and fibrosis. With these classification criteria, 
larger scale study of this pathophysiology is likely to further our understanding of not only the disease itself, but also many other autoimmune and fibrotic conditions, ranging from systemic sclerosis to cirrhosis. Additionally, these criteria feature exclusion criteria that are strongly associated with IgG4-related disease mimickers rather than the disease itself. This focus on exclusion criteria is novel in rheumatology classification criteria, and future criteria in our field can make use of this framework both to improve specificity of the criteria themselves and to heighten clinicians' awareness of specific features that should make them question a given diagnosis. Will IgG4 Four related disease classification criteria win its first round matchup? In its first round matchup, the IgG4 related disease criteria will compete with the study describing three subtypes of relapsing polychondritis. The excellent study on relapsing polychondritis subtypes demonstrated that the most common forms of relapsing polychondritis lack many of its characteristic features, thereby leading to significant delays in diagnosis. While this is tremendously important in the field of relapsing polychondritis, the IgG4-related disease classification criteria achieve a similar goal on a much larger scale in a disease that arguably has less widespread recognition and understanding. Additionally, the classification criteria have many implications that reach beyond the disease itself, both because of its novelty and its potential impact IgG4-related disease classification criteria is likely to beat RP subtypes in its first-round matchup. Could IgG4-related disease classification criteria win it all? Alas, storiform fibrosis alone is not enough to confirm the ever-elusive diagnosis of IgG4-related disease. As it can mimic many other conditions and be difficult to confirm, classification criteria are essential to identify patients and allow them to be properly treated. Doctors Stone and Wallace have both been leaders in the understanding of IgG4-related disease and have again come through with criteria that have a whopping specificity of greater than 98%. It will likely win against RP subtypes in its first bracket, though it is hard to predict how it will fare against Vexus, a worthy challenger that is so unlike the rest. As prednisone is a mainstay of therapy in IgG4-related disease, it may be tough to compete with a vacapan, which demonstrated an unmatched steroid-sparing effect, and belimumab and anafrolumab, which show promise as new options in the treatment of lupus. However, once it makes it past the initial rounds, its novelty combined with its widespread applicability will likely lead it to win against more bread-and-butter topics like gout and rheumatoid arthritis. Relapsing Polychondritis Subtypes Scouting Report, written by the Wake Forest University School of Medicine Rheumatology Fellows, including Paige Bomar, Rami Diab, John Harrion, and Yael Kleonsky. Topic Overview. Relapsing polychondritis, or RP, is a heterogeneous systemic inflammatory disease characterized by multi-system involvement, including tracheobronchial tree, upper airways, cranial cartilaginous structures, ears and nose, eyes, blood vessels, cardiac valves, and skin. Historically, diagnosis rests on fulfillment of the McAdams criteria. In spite of its potentially fatal presentation, diagnosis is curtailed by heterogeneity of presentation, especially when the disease does not necessarily present with cranial chondritis. For this reason, RP may present as a diagnostic dilemma even to the astute physician. 
This being the case, diagnostic delay is not uncommon and can range anywhere from 1 to 20 years, potentially leaving irreversible end organ damage throughout the course of the disease. Other causes of RP-related morbidity, if left undiagnosed, includes tracheomalacia and subglottic stenosis, which may require ICU admission, as well as hearing loss and its associated disability. It has recently been demonstrated that patients with relapsing polychondritis broadly fall into three phenotypic classification schemes, types 1, 2, and 3. Type 1 RP is characterized by high prevalence of cranial chondritis, including ear chondritis and saddle nose deformity, as well as upper airway involvement, including tracheomalacia and subglottic stenosis, but may also have associated inner ear involvement, synovitis, and inflammatory eye disease, seemingly representing the most clinically active phenotypic variant with the greatest averaged elevation in markers of systemic inflammation. Type 2 relapsing polychondritis, on the other hand, shares features of tracheomalacia, synovitis, and inner ear disease, has a lower prevalence of cranial chondritis, including auricular and nasal involvement, as well as a lower prevalence of ocular inflammation. Finally, type 3 RP is said to have no airway involvement, but rather ear chondritis, inner ear involvement, and synovitis. Implications for patients, providers, and researchers. Current implications. Relapsing polychondritis is a potentially severe and debilitating disorder which, if left unrecognized and or suboptimally treated, can lead to devastating consequences including disability and even death. Having not only a diagnostic classification, but this most recent simplified phenotypic classification scheme can help better diagnose and treat patients who present as diagnostic challenge. Future implications. This classification scheme opens up avenues for further research and suggests that different RP types are likely to behave differently from a clinical standpoint and may potentially even respond differently to treatment. Furthermore, could use of this classification schema lead to shortened median time to diagnosis, leading us into a future where relapsing polychondritis patients receive earlier intervention and suffer less complication from disease? We think so. Will relapsing polychondritis win its first round matchup? RP certainly has the ability to advance through the first round, but it'll come down to the final buzzer. Paired against IgG4 related disease, we find two studies focused on the rarest of the rare diseases. Both studies find strength in setting forth clinical guidance by which we can recognize and diagnose these diseases. IgG4's validated classification criteria places emphasis on exclusion criteria that reduce the likelihood that patients have IgG4-related disease, but also has strong inclusion criteria in addition to objective measures for making clinical diagnosis. Relapsing polychondritis finds its strength in simplifying and categorizing the variety of presentations of disease, reminding us that up to one-third of RP cases exist in patients with underlying systemic disease, such as vasculitis, myelodysplastic disease, and that the classic presentation of RP is less common than we may believe. The clinical observations in relapsing polychondritis may be enough to beat the full-court press from IgG4-related disease pushing them into the second round. Could relapsing polychondritis win it all? 
The madness is all about the little guys taking on the powerhouses, and this is no exception. While RP has the ability to make it out of the first round, a potential face-off against Vexus is daunting. The clinical implications in RP are fantastic, but limitations in defining the disease's full clinical picture may end their run early when facing the Room World newcomer. Looking at a potential Final Four matchup out of the Anka SLE region is a scary proposition for RP, but March is for miracles. Anti-CD38 in Refractory SLE Scouting Report Written by the fellows from the University of North Carolina, including Leah Bettner, Shruti Chandramuli, Amanda Lusa, Christopher Overton, and Enid Sun. Topic Overview SLE pathophysiology is characterized by the development of pathogenic autoantibodies by plasma cells. Currently, there are SLE therapies that target early stages of B-cell development to prevent autoantibody production, including anti-CD20 and anti-BAF monoclonal antibodies. However, long-lived plasma cells do not respond to these available treatments. As such, specifically targeting the plasma cell source of autoantibody production is therapeutically attractive. Plasma cells express the glycoprotein CD38. Daratumumab is a CD38-directed monoclonal antibody that is currently used to deplete malignant plasma cells in multiple myeloma. Extension of daratumumab as a viable treatment option for refractory lupus was upheld in this proof-of-concept report. Two patients with life-threatening lupus refractory to traditional treatment options were treated with a four-week course of daratumumab followed by maintenance therapy with bulimumab after four months. Treatment resulted in highly favorable response rates in major organ involvement, including lupus nephritis, pericarditis, and autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Organ-specific response rates were accompanied by improvement in serum serological markers of disease activity and SLEED-I2K scores over the course of 11 to 12 months of follow-up. Post-treatment flow cytometry and transcriptome analysis demonstrated that the benefits of anti-CD38 therapy extended beyond plasma cell targets. Treatment resulted in reduction of CD38 expressing natural killer cells, plasmacytoid dendritic cells, CD19 positive B cells, and decreased T cell activation and interferon signaling. Overall, this report suggests that daratumumab is a potential therapy for refractory lupus. Implications for patients, providers, and researchers. Current implications. This study raises consideration for the following. Number one, plasma cells amongst other CD38 positive cells contribute to SLE pathogenesis. Number two, Targeting the CD38 glycoprotein promotes depletion of long-lived plasma cells and, when used concomitantly with bilimumab, results in favorable clinical outcomes for patients with refractory lupus. This study highlights how the lupus treatment armamentarium would benefit from further research into plasma cell-depleting therapies. Future Implications This study sets the stage for further investigation into a novel treatment modality for lupus. The exact mechanism of action of daratumumab in SLE pathophysiology remains speculative and warrants further evaluation to confirm its unique targeting mechanism and downstream immunologic and clinical effects. The current data is cautiously optimistic. However, 
The positive outcomes will likely prompt further investigation into larger safety studies and ultimately clinical trials. If larger randomized trials are ultimately pursued, concurrent treatment with bilimumab might be considered as part of a multimodal B-cell targeting strategy. Clinicians treating patients with highly refractory lupus might consider daratumumab as an off-label therapeutic strategy and should stay tuned for potential future clinical trial enrollment options for anti-CD38 therapy. Will daratumumab win its first-round matchup? Daratumumab is difficult to compare to its Vexus opponent. The Vexus study identifies a new systemic disease, which will certainly prompt further studies into pathogenesis and ultimately treatment considerations. The daratumumab study identifies a new treatment for an already well-defined systemic disease. A clear advantage daratumumab has over Vexus is the suspected far-reaching fan base of lupus patients who will show up to support the daratumumab team. The Vexus fan base is still to be determined, and without the support of a crowd, our opponent might falter against daratumumab. Could daratumumab win it all? While it is easy to underestimate this small but mighty daratumumab team, the exciting future therapeutic implications for refractory lupus could help it win the entire tournament. Although the study reviewed only two cases, the fact that it was published in the High Impact New England Journal of Medicine shows that there is great potential for this team to go all the way. However, if daratumumab gets past the first round against Vexus, it will have to face formidable opponents, RP subtypes or IgG4-related disease classification criteria, both important studies helping to classify multi-organ system rare diseases with many overlapping manifestations. If successful, it will then have to face the powerhouse teams of lupus and ANCA, all of which have significant clinical implications. However, the potential to use daratumumab for the sickest of our lupus patients could help it win it all. Vexus Scouting Report, written by the Room Madness Leadership Team. Topic Overview. Vexus is a newly described adult-onset autoinflammatory syndrome caused by a mutation in the UBA1 gene on the X chromosome that encodes the E1 enzyme, a key component of the ubiquitilation system. To date, Vexus has exclusively been described in older patients, unlike other known autoinflammatory syndromes caused by a genetic mutation. This is because Vexus is due to a somatic, also known as acquired mutation in blood cells that occurs later in life, rather than an inherited mutation that affects all cells from the beginning of fetal development. In this way, Vexus is somewhat akin to an acquired mutation that leads to cancer, only instead of cancer, this mutation leads to severe inflammation. Vexus was discovered when researchers found three men with what appeared to be two different copies of the UBA1 gene on the X chromosome. This was an unexpected finding as men only have one X chromosome and thus should only have one copy of each gene. Instead of attributing their findings to a sequencing error, the researchers evaluated the clinical phenotypes of these men and discovered that all three had cytopenias, strange vacuoles in the myeloid cells of the bone marrow, and intense inflammatory syndromes. Ultimately, they found 25 cases of this new syndrome and performed a variety of incredible experiments to describe it further. All patients had cytopenias and inflammatory syndromes, including chondritis, vasculitis, and neutrophilic infiltrates of the lungs and skin. 
The syndrome was subsequently named for its major features. V for vacuoles seen on bone marrow biopsy, E for E1 gene, X for X chromosome, A for autoinflammatory, and S for somatic mutation. Implications for patients, providers, and researchers. Current implications. To date, Vexis has only been described in 25 patients, so the current implications are somewhat small. However, the association between relapsing polychondritis and myelodysplasia in older men is already well recognized, and Vexis may explain this connection. Furthermore, the true incidence of Vexis remains unknown. Perhaps additional clinical manifestations beyond those currently described will appear as more cases are reported. It is even possible that women with somatic UBA1 mutations could be affected, just to a lesser degree than men given their two X chromosomes. Awareness of Vexus is critical for practicing adult rheumatologists who are not used to looking for genetic causes of adult-onset inflammatory diseases. Future Implications this team's strength lies primarily in its future implications, and it is, as it is the first adult-onset inflammatory syndrome known to be caused by a somatic mutation. There are likely many more of these kinds of syndromes that have yet to be described. The methodology used by the Vexus research team may prove foundational for future work in this area. Many rheumatologists have been dumbfounded by adult patients with severe inflammatory syndromes that are refractory to treatment. Perhaps thanks to Vexus, over the next several decades, we will start to learn the names and targeted treatment options for these conditions. Will Vexus win its first-round matchup? Vexus stands a very good chance against its first-round opponent, anti-CD38 and refractory systemic lupus erythematosus, largely due to the groundbreaking scientific work of the Vexus team. However, they do need to be on alert for anti-CD38's ability to steal the ball and shoot three-pointers, as anti-CD38 is an actual treatment that could be considered for very sick patients with systemic lupus erythematosus, whereas targeted treatment options for Vexus, like bone marrow transplant or gene therapy, remain theoretical at best. Could Vexus win it all? It's far-fetched, but not impossible for this small but mighty Cinderella team to win the tournament, as the future implications truly are something special. Assuming Vexus makes it through the first round, it might have to watch out for RP subtypes in the second round, as that's another excellent study from the same senior author, Peter Grayson, and who knows if it could make it through the juggernauts coming out of the ANCA and SLE regions. But the science of Vexus alone could help it go all the way. Okay, thanks so much to all the fellows who contributed to those really fantastic scouting reports about some really interesting rheumatology topics that are in this part of the tournament. I have no idea what's going to come out of this tournament, especially in these regions, so it's going to be fun. And thanks so much to Dr. Crisioni for reading these for us. Uh, stay tuned for the next episode, which is going to have the last installment of the scouting reports. And don't forget to fill out your brackets by March 26th. Thank you.